As always, good evening, good morning, good afternoon, whenever it is you're listening to us. We're back again, so thank you for listening last time, and if you didn't, well, you should have done. And you can listen back, so that's fine. I'm here, I'm Mike, I have got Graham. Good evening. I've got Jim. Good evening, how are you? I've got David. Hello. And, listening quietly, and he would say very patiently, is Andrew. Now, this evening, this is a bit of a Williams special, I think, because things have happened in Formula One, which, let's face it, the best people to answer this are Graham, James and David. So, guys, what do you think? Well, I, I'm quite happy to lead on this if you want. I mean, I, as the oldest, I've been around Formula One the longest. It's very, very sad to see uh, Frank and Claire uh, leaving and the team being bought out by a what is essentially a venture capitalist. Let's hope the name is retained, but I did notice this afternoon the managing director also left, whether that was planned or not, and whether the clear leaving was planned or not. It's difficult to tell, but their platitudinous press releases suggest all is well. I certainly hope so. They're, they're a great team. They have been a great team. They've had a couple of lean years, but I'm sure there's greatness there again. You know, Frank has been around a long time. He's, he's a, a wily old fox. And I, I think one of the great things about the man who had the determination to carry on despite his massive accident, he returned to the track action very, very quickly. And uh, I've got tremendous admiration, uh, as I think we all have, for, for Frank. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a, a measure of... Frank's personality and his his ambition and desire, as he said, to have carried on in the way he did after his accident. If uh, if his personality and and will got him into that situation in the first place, it certainly seemed to get him out of it once he was in that situation. I think it's it would have been far far too easy for him to to give up or take a step back or focus on his his health or you know simply look at the situation and say, well, I'm not able to do this anymore and 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 have stepped away back in the 80s but the fact he carried on despite his condition uh, I think is is testament to him. Now he's a man that um, was never very good at giving interviews but I was very lucky enough uh, some years ago to catch up with him and to talk to him all the questions that, that were, were being thrown at him I think were who's your next driver pairing etc etc all very predictable stuff and I asked him more about the process how do you decide who your next drivers are? Who decides? How is that structured within the company? Uh, and who has the final call on it? And I think his answers give a clue to how Frank got to the top by managing people and managing the people around him and forming a bonded team of people that were all going in the right direction. From the archive, 2006. And in the uh, Drivers' Club, talking to Sir Frank Williams, a very rare opportunity to talk to you, and thank you for sparing me some time, Sir Frank. A long and illustrious, one of the most illustrious of all, Formula One records, but it's been a pretty tough season for you this season. How do you deal with that in terms of the team's morale? I, I think what's common to most, Grand, if not all, Grand Prix teams is a passion for what people do. And certainly Williams F1 is full of people been around for many years. Some not so long, but they all really live for F1. And they all know it's hard, they all know that it would be easy. 
it would be worth doing to some extent. So people are ready for the rough times and they know and they're optimists if you like too. But we all we all know we're gonna come back and that's what we're striving for. You have to go, I guess, through this uh, sort of natural cycle of rebuilding periods. Yes, we don't have to rebuild or refresh, yes, rebuild. Yeah. Well, brick by brick isn't quite the case anymore, but uh, yes, it is humbling. It makes you have a good look at your structure and to see where improvements must be made, where the cobwebs have grown, etc. You must do something about it, you can't resist change. And drive a line up. Uh, I know there's been some speculation about Mark's position for next year. I spoke to him this morning and you know he said that decision is yours. That's, that's a, a tough call to think your way ahead through those, but you've had many years of doing it, not for one specific individual, but how do you make those sorts of decisions and over what sort of time scale? So, sometimes it's a little like pinning the tail on the donkey blindfold, but with Mark and with Nico we know what we've got. Um, we'll, soon, we'll soon make an announcement, but not, not for several weeks. But that process can perhaps sometimes be a relatively short one, you know straight away that that guy is right for you, and other times it might take some months. You said it exactly, that is right, yeah. Is that a decision that you still take personally, or is it very much a collective decision? Absolutely not. I don't operate the cars, I don't work with the drivers throughout the, the Grand Prix season directly, nor throughout the endless testing summer and winter. It's the engineers, starting with Patrick, Head and Sam Michael, who have the most influence and, in truth, the most knowledge about the abilities of each and every driver. I'll pass on an observation to you, which is I was talking to Sterling Moss earlier today, and I often quiz him about how he sees the rising stars. And of the current crop of drivers, he rates three most highly, which is uh, Mika, uh, Fernando, and Michael Schumacher, and he's now added a new name to the list, Nico, who he reckons is a future world champion. Well, that's a flattering comment. And our present car isn't world championship material, championship material, but we also do believe that as Stanley Nico has the potential to make it in the right team with the right equipment. We know that needs to be us. We want it to be us, but as you've indicated earlier, we have some work to go. Williams always came across as a very technical team. I mean, they're all technical, obviously, the teams, but I think Williams had a particular knack of doing an awful lot with not quite as much as everyone else. And uh, they were very lucky in some respects in that they were allied with big engine manufacturers, you know, the big ones being obviously Honda and Renault back in the olden days, and um, they excelled. But they really, you know, still never had a massive budget, certainly not when, you know, McLaren could sort of pull money out of a back pocket and pay for God knows whatever they wanted. Williams would be scrimping and saving, and I think that was instrumental in them having to let drivers go when they would probably have quite happily kept them. But, you know, they, they missed development drivers, and I think that, again, was a detriment to them because a development driver, certainly, such as Damon Hill, who had that, uh, that talent to be able to get a lot of technical aspects out of the car and communicate that to the people that needed to know... Um, losing somebody like that was a great loss to them, and I think that's partly responsible for them losing their form. Frank's attitude to uh, to drivers was a bit uh, a bit light bulb, wasn't it? I think that was a famous Patrick Head um, phrase that drivers are like light bulbs. You just unscrew one and screw another in, and that's it. Uh, they they did seem to have a, a history of bidding off drivers, successful drivers, or uh, you know drivers who'd simply done their job. The job of a Formula One driver is to turn up, win races. Um, and uh, win the championship. Um, yet over a number of years, they seem to consistently 
uh, lose part ways, sack or uh, or otherwise not be involved anymore with uh, with several world championship drivers i i'm not sure what the statistics are on uh, drivers who've won a championship and then moved to another team the following season um but off the top of my head you know nigel mansell didn't drive for williams uh, i get i know he came back in 94 but he left the team after he won the championship mm. um damon hill did uh, i think alan prost did uh, possibly into retirement, I believe, but I think that there was certainly a, a string of uh, of drivers that that left. They were equally problematic in in nurturing very very good engineers. I mean, some of the best engineers, the Newies of this world, that came through, started the with with Williams, uh, and then moved on for. Or, I don't know more authority, more power, more money. Who knows what? Really, Williams' decline started in uh, at the end of '96, beginning of '97, didn't it? I mean, mm. when uh, when they got rid of Damon, um, who was renowned for not only being quite handy behind the wheel, but also a fantastic development and test driver. You only needed to look at the the progress of Arrows the following year, and then Jordan over the next couple of years to see how good he was. Um, and I don't think it's too much of a coincidence that the minute he left, the team started to decline, although it picked up again a bit in the early part of the turbo hybrid era, uh, as they had the Mercedes engines. They, they never seemed to really get, get anything back to, uh, to being a championship team. So was, was the attitude to drivers a, a slight factor in their downfall, do we think? Well, I think that is the case, but I, but I think ultimately the, it, it came down to money because... Very often, somebody who's just uh, had a very good season with Williams wants to up the ante considerably. And I think Frank was... They were never well enough financed to play those games. They were always, if they couldn't retain somebody, they would have to find somebody younger, somebody more inexperienced, but somebody perhaps who brought some money with them. So you're quite right. The decline has has been more than 10 years in, in the making, but... Uh, I admire the fact they didn't want to give up when it was obvious maybe five or six years ago that it was not going to be a long-term future for the team. They hung on to the bitter end. They've done the best deal they can, I suspect, uh, not just for themselves but for uh, for the rest of the uh, of the team. And uh, you know, let's hope they do do well. I keep my fingers crossed for them. As I say, I have a lot of respect for, for the team, for the people. And uh, they've been nice to me on occasion as well, so I can't complain. I can understand Claire's rationale for wanting to step away totally. If it's her name above the door, her family that owns it, whether it's, you know, daddy's business or whether it's her family business, whichever way you want to look at it, it, uh, it must be a very odd feeling to go from, from working for yourself, for your family company, for your dad's company that's been built up over the years, uh, to suddenly being owned by a group of relative strangers uh, it must be a very, a very odd feeling, and maybe a slightly bitter pill to swallow. We know Claire wasn't uh, overly enthusiastic about selling the team in the run-up to it. Uh, I think she probably had to face facts that that there was no alternative. If they'd have carried on, then the team would have risked folding entirely, and uh, and of course, along with it, the however many hundreds of people they employed. Obviously, nothing mm. like the the mm. numbers Mercedes and Red Bull, but there's you know still two, three, four hundred people and two three four hundred families that rely on that company to to earn a living much as going racing is part of it you know you 99 times out of 100 you have a job to pay your bills and pay your rent or pay your mortgage don't you so to to put that forefront um and take that decision to sell the team despite 
how hard it must have been. Uh, I think it speaks volumes, but um, yeah, I'm not not totally surprised she's walked away. Whether they they wanted, you know, whether she walked or whether she was pushed, I'm uh, I'm not too sure. But from what she said and on the face of it, we have no reason to uh, to disbelieve it. I think her reasons were were quite legitimate. Definitely the end of an era. Yeah, I quite agree. I I, I think she made a good case for going as as she did, but I I, I think uh, she had by that stage managed to protect. Uh, the heritage and as you say and protect the jobs and protect the team and the families and uh, you know one of the things about the the Williams team was the fact that people tended to stay all right the star designers sort of came and went over the years the star drivers came and went but the team was rock solid Um, and many of the people that, that were there had been there way way back 20 30 40 years in many cases but I think it uh, it does show even with the budget cap coming in uh, to to have a family owned, family run, big business of any sort these days is uh, they're, they're fairly fa- few and far between. Um, mm. And uh, and Formula One is is no different. It's a, a huge, a huge business, and there aren't many companies that uh, that can enter, survive, and uh, and even thrive or be successful in Formula One. So uh, to to be a family run team for as long as they have, I think, is a phenomenal achievement. Um, but no, I think to, to be anything like competitive, they, they certainly couldn't have carried on like they were. So who knows? Let's uh, let's hope there's uh, some good investment chucked into the team. Let's hope it's not run for a little while and then either sold off or dissolved or, or whatever else. Let's hope the uh, the name keeps going and the, and the people there keep going and, um, and they get back to winning ways. Fingers crossed. For me, there's one thing that... Um... I think speaks volumes of how big a, a a race team has got, and that is the fact that they have their own special edition cars. And I know that they're they're old now. It's from you know, it's one of those cars that when you're a kid, you think gold wheels, the Renault Clio Williams, proper collector's mm. thing now. But they're mm. one of those cars that you know, your mates had, and you couldn't help but think that these things were, were pretty incredible. Really, two liter lump, gold wheels wide arches they're just they're just pretty cool to be honest till they all rotted away and <laughs> like they're on rails as well amazing things they um, the williams really did have a proper input into the suspension on that thing and it showed it handles beautifully i had a friend who had one and it went around corners like a go-kart amazing yeah the very very well sorted hatch the start really of uh, of that relationship as you quite uh, correctly identify michael between uh, a, a formula one team and the car maker that supported and and uh, that's an area that's developed all the way through. I think Renault have always managed to get this this recipe right, though, because generally speaking, I have to say, my personal experience is the cars themselves, general cars, haven't been that great. Sort of four years old, lots of problems. However, the sport ones always have been genuinely brilliant to drive. Um, the Renault Sports and, as you say, like the, the Clio Williams and everything else that sort of come in between. And genuinely great cars. Something like a, a 172 182 Clio now makes a great track toy. Um, because they've got plenty of power, they're lightweight, and, and they are good fun to drive. But what have we we've seen since? We've had the F1 Twizy, uh, which was brilliant. And one of those is up for sale now, in fact. If you want one, the green one is currently available with the uh, the whole front um, splitter system. And we'll try and pop a link up onto the site if it's still there. If you can still buy one, um, then you, who knows, you might feel tempted. Because I thought they were hilarious. It looked like great fun. Uh, even the stand one was great fun. 
I'm, uh, I'm still watching that on uh, on eBay, as are 246 other people. And uh, yes, that one uh, that one's still there, but it is £29,950, and that's a lot of money. That's a, that is a lot of money. What else could you get? You could get a Mercedes A-Class with the Patronus green, couldn't you? I'm just trying to think what other F1 special editions there have been over the years. I'm not even sure you own the battery for uh, for thirty grand as well. What? I think the one that comes to my mind, but rather more money, was the McLaren Senna. I mean, that's I would, I'm not sure that's an F1 special edition as such, is it? Or is it? Mm, well, it bears the name McLaren. It's it's and it bears the name of one of the greatest Formula One drivers ever. Okay, yeah, I see where you're going with that. Yeah, I mean, there's that that makes sense. I'm thinking really more of the slightly more accessible. F1 specials which people can buy into. There wasn't, there wasn't any Ford F1 specials, I can think of. Well, they did the super vans, didn't they? There was the... Um, oh, Renault. Renault did the Espace as well, didn't they? With the, basically uh, an Espace body on a on a Formula 1 V10 engine chassis. Which that was, was incredible. Hilarious. Yeah, and they, <laughs> they did a few others. That, was, that wasn't Ford a seven-seater, well. though, was it? <laughs> uh, no, no, it was uh, a one-seater, I think, wasn't it? <laughs> if you were lucky. Some of those transit supervans are incredible, though. Just amazing. That, that does show the excess of uh, Formula One in the uh, 80s, 90s, and, uh, and even early 2000s. You know, why, why would you do that? Well, because we can. Why not? It's something because you can. Yeah. And, uh, with, uh, with plenty of tobacco sponsorship money flying around, uh, I think, you know, listening to, um, to some of Mark Priestley's uh, podcasts and videos and bits and pieces you know he said that the money they had flying around from the tobacco companies back in the day was uh, was just absolutely insane but unfortunately that's uh, it's not politically correct to be sponsored by fag companies anymore or even not allowed so that's uh, probably part of the uh, of the funding problem of course williams had rothman's sponsorship for years and years and years mm-hmm. um, yeah. and actually when when that disappeared off the car uh, we had winfield for uh, for a very short period of time but um yeah, once the Rothmans livery disappeared, that seemed to coincide with the uh, with the decline of the team, and um, yeah, they never really recovered or haven't recovered yet, shall we say? I think my my favourites I've mentioned before was uh, was Jordan with buzzing hornets. I still have the Bitten jacket. <laughs> I, I have to say, <laughs> the, we, we've said it before, but definitely cigarette advertising gave some fantastic liveries and some fantastic colours. Rothmans definitely being one of them. And not just in Formula One, if you think of Rothmans in in Rally, for example, on Escorts, on Porsches, in if you think of the sort of the Le Mans type races as well, they've had some fantastic liveries. It is it's a shame to have to have lost the colours, I think, as much as anything else. I understand why you can't advertise uh, cigarettes on cars now, but uh, but there were some fantastic colours. Well it's down to the vaping companies now, isn't it? It's up to you boys, you need to bring out some fantastic liveries. <laughs> Come on, Jim, you're a, an, an end user in this. Can you suggest any decent um, companies who might have a decent look? You are just one move away from a stance Volkswagen. Uh, well, I, d- I don't know, to be fair. I think in terms of um, juice companies, I, I mix up my own. So there's, uh, I, I haven't got the money to sponsor an F1 team. So I don't know what the livery would be. Just sort of cloudy grey and smelling slightly of donuts, <laughs> I would imagine. I'm not sure that Jim's juice is going to really sell it either, is it? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I'd like, I don't know. I, if you I went into like to see that. NASCAR, it might work. I would like to see that on the side of an F1 car, and I, I would pay to see that on the side of an F1 car. I'm just not sure I'd pay uh, two or three hundred million pounds for it. Well, here's the thing, because I've ended up following you places and bits and pieces and other cars when we've ended up 
dropping something off somewhere or whatever it might be or on test and when you're vaping heavy in the car in front unless you've hit the recirculation button all of a sudden you get this <laughs> smell cola <laughs> where's this where's this come from well, cherries or something maybe what we need to do is find a way red arrow style of them just dispensing the vape fluid out the back of the car as they're driving around it'll be the best smelling formula championship ever in multiple colors i think i was yeah. just about to say we do need to uh, investigate if a uh, colored e-liquid is a thing i'm not sure it is to be totally honest but who Just knows imagine the state of your tongue i don't think it'd be it very is. good for you to be honest it would be like when you, you used yeah, to get lollies, tongue. like the Chupa Chups or whatever, and you'd end up with a different coloured tongue. Well, just think, if that's doing that to your tongue, imagine what it would be doing to your lungs. <laughs> or those of anybody else nearby. For the benefit mm. of the tape, Jim has just disappeared in fog of his own making. <laughs> in other Formula One news, we had a Grand Prix at the weekend, and uh, in complete contrast to the uh, the slight snooze fest that was the Belgian Grand Prix uh, mm. we had the Italian Grand Prix and what a race that was that was absolutely fantastic i must admit i had to uh, to disappear out so i'd uh, i'd watched it up until the safety car I thought, right, that's a good time to pause, so I'll, uh, I'll go out, I'll do some other bits and pieces, and I'll come back and watch it later. And, uh, yes, it all uh, it all kicked off from there, didn't it? And, and massive, massive shout-out to Pierre Gasly. I mean, OK, taking advantage of circumstances, but apart from uh, Lance Stroll, who we'll get on to in a minute, the rules were the same for absolutely everyone. The, uh, the track mm. conditions and, and what happened in what order it happened were exactly the same for everyone. He just drove superbly. The pressure he was under at the end of the race from Carlos Sainz, it would have been so easy to, to snatch a break, to run wide, to, uh, to just get on the power a little bit too quick coming out of the last corner and muck something up, but he, uh, he held on really, really well. And I, the, the last 12, 18 months that the lad has had, from being dropped by Red Bull to the, uh, the death of his best friend, Antoine, and uh, some really tough times in the meantime. He's, uh, he's bounced back so well, but he's uh, just an absolute superstar. It, it was a cracking race, and uh, no, thoroughly, thoroughly deserved by uh, certainly the top two places. I, I do think they need to get rid of this rule about um, being able to change tyres or use the, the period in the pit lane under red flag conditions as uh, as your free pit stop as you know the the rules are quite clear during the race drivers must run both compounds of tire and that's that's normally done by a pit stop but uh, yeah Lance Lance Stroll never took a pit stop they uh, it, I think that's very similar I, I I thought they'd changed this rule because ever since uh, Jensen was robbed of, uh, of a victory a couple of years ago was it 2012 in Monaco something like that um He'd uh, he'd had a better strategy and, and played it well. Uh, there was a red flag for whatever reason, and, and Vettel lucked into the victory on that occasion. I I thought they'd they'd change this rule because it was uh, that that was a bit silly for uh, for Stroll to be allowed. But luckily he cocked up the uh, the restart and just sort of limped over into a third place. When you know it, realistically, if Stroll was uh, was half sensible, he should have won that. But um, no, just hats off to Gasly. Well done. No, very well done. I've interviewed him several times over the years as, as a younger driver coming up through the other formula and, and, and into the Red Bull as a reserve driver, I think, the, the last time I interviewed him. But, you know, I've I've been sort of championing his cause for some time. He's, uh, he's a very, very nice young man, clearly very capable, clearly a very, very good team player. From the archive. 
2017. You've just come back from a run up the hill. How did that go? Okay. It was fine. Actually, it didn't uh, go as expected because we we caught uh, we caught fire at the beginning of the run, just uh, going at the start. So uh, uh, it was a bit uh, a bit messy, but uh, yeah, just uh, we got stuck behind some other cars and uh, what? Was that you? I saw being towed back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, yeah, this was a bit unexpected, but uh, no. After that, yeah, we had the, the first run, and yeah, it just feels amazing, you know, like to drive a Formula One car. It's uh, up the hill, of course, uh, with so many people. It's not the same atmosphere as uh, during a race, but uh, it just, uh, yeah, pure joy. So. But for you, it's it's more time in the car, and time in the car is, I'm sure, what you really want. Yeah, exactly. But uh, yeah, I mean, this kind of event is is more like you know, for the fans. Uh, as a driver, you just enjoy driving up the hill. Of course, you can't push to the to the maximum, but I uh, know it's just a great opportunity, you know, to uh, to be sitting in uh, in a Formula One car and uh, and just uh, have some uh, some time to enjoy it. Let's talk a little bit about your role within the team because there there were drivers behind the drivers that are actually in the seats and we hear occasionally a little bit about what they do but I mean tell us what your what your day job is if you like are you in the simulator most of the time or yeah exactly so I have many days in the sim uh, yeah pro approximately between 30 and 35 days a year so uh, I do quite a lot of development with the team um, and then after, yeah, I need to be on track uh, during the during the race weekend just to make sure that if sof if something happens to uh, one of the drivers, I'm ready to jump in and uh, and to perform. So uh, of course I need to train hard, and uh, the target is clearly to uh, hopefully get a get a seat for next year on the grid. So I'm just trying to uh, yeah take uh, as much experience as I can. You know I'm working with great drivers, like fantastic drivers, with Max and Daniel. Uh, well, yeah, probably the best, one of the best, uh, yeah, two of the best drivers on the grid. So you know, I have lots of things to uh, to take from them, and uh, yeah, I'm just uh, at the moment watching, uh, learning as much as I can, and uh, and hopefully uh, I'll be able to use this uh, experience uh, with uh, F1 seat next year um, in a, in a team. So. In this team or another team? You know, you're not going to tell me that, are you? <laughs> you know, like yeah. For me, my, my dream and my goal has always been to uh, to be in F1, and uh, and yeah, I'm really grateful for uh, with Red Bull with what they have done with me. Uh, they supported me since four years already, and uh, yeah, thanks to them, I I was able to uh, to be in three on five to to win GP2 last year, and yeah, to get some uh, Formula One tests with the team and with Toro Rosso. So hopefully we can make something uh, something happen with them in uh, in Formula One, and uh, that's what I'm working for at the moment. Uh, it's a bit too early to to say what's going to happen, but uh, yeah, believe me, I'm pushing Helmut every day, uh, and uh, yeah, let's see how things will go. But um, yeah, hopefully I will be on the grid. I mean, the Red Bull staircase really seems to be where it's at now for young drivers. You know, it's just bringing people through all the way through from karting and and uh, into the position you're in and Toro Rosso with another another team under the same umbrella it gives you another opportunity yeah of course I mean uh, yeah as you can see like every drivers in Red Bull uh, went through Toro Rosso uh, went through the program and, and then after step up to Toro Rosso before to jump to uh, to Red Bull so uh, yeah of course uh, as a young driver uh, the, the target is to get in uh, in Toro Rosso uh, at the moment Carlos and, and Daniela are performing uh, performing quite well 
Um, so yeah, let's see, uh, let's see what will happen. Um, but yeah, hopefully things things will uh, will change and um, and yeah, I'm pushing for it and just working hard to to make it happen. Well, I wish you well. I hope it all works out for you next season. Yeah. Thank you very much, Pierre. Thank you. And next season it did. <laughs> next season it, did. it didn't. By magic. <laughs> Very likeable young man, and uh, it's good to see these young guys do well. And he is one of those ones that over the years I've been able to interview who is happy to set time aside to talk to people. And some are complete tossers. <laughs> Many are very, very welcoming and uh, happy to set time aside. Many, many years ago, I interviewed a young David Coulthard who was asked by a marshal to move the car that was in the... Uh, line up he did and then came back to finish the interview didn't need to but he did because that's the sort of character he is i think this is the case for a, a lot of people we've been fortunate enough to interview over the years though people that okay some people are compelled to be there i get that but some genuinely nice people george russell's another good example of this really interesting to talk to same with kibitza i think same with bottas i think they, they were all just really good to chat to in fact if you're interested to hear more of this then why not take a look at some of our old podcasts we'll put a link up on the website and you can see some of the chats we've had with some fantastic people over the years so what do we uh what do we think as a uh result of the uh, the events at Monza then so I think we've got probably three uh, three major talking points uh, to have a look at now a has got to be the uh, the pace of the Ferrari mm. which was abysmal absolutely woeful I, I almost think that a, a double DNF was the best result they could have possibly hoped for really uh, as I think otherwise they, they'd have limped around and and finished what twelfth and fourteenth if they were lucky fifteenth sixteenth something like that absolutely zero pace but I guess that's kind of what happens when um, when you put all your eggs in the engine basket and it's not a hundred percent correct and then you get told to behave yourself it uh, it pegs back the performance somewhat doesn't it so how are they going to go at their thousandth race special next time out? The Tuscan Grand Prix, or the Tuscany Grand Prix, I think it's called. At Mugello. The other two talking points are uh, have got to be, where does Pierre Gasly go from here? Do we think he's going to go back to the Red Bull main seat? Do we think he's going to stay where he is for next year? Or do we think another team is uh, is going to come calling? As I think that, that second Red Bull seat, I, I can imagine being a teammate to Max must be uh, quite tricky at the best of times. But there's there's been a, a succession of number two drivers at Red Bull that uh, that haven't done very well. So uh, do Red Bull just need to be, you know, to to be upfront about it and say that they are a, uh, you know, a number one and a number two driver team and that's it and, and manage expectations accordingly? Because I think how well Carlos Sainz seems to have done now he's left the Red Bull family. He, he seems to have blossomed at McLaren. It'll be interesting to see how he gets on at, uh, at Ferrari next year. But Ricardo seems uh, seems much happier these days. And, you know, the, uh, a long string of drivers seem to have left the Red Bull family and done okay. So what do we think for Pierre? Maybe maybe Haas? Maybe Williams? No, I, th- I, I think he'd probably be sensible to stay where he is, because I think that team is... is... <laughs> Of of all the Italian teams, that's certainly the one to be in, and the big red one is not the one to be in. So um, I think if he's got any sense, he'll stay where he is for at least twenty twenty one and uh, see what's on offer after that. Um, you know, I think he's got a stable situation there, and uh, clearly he's the class of that team. 
He's one of the, the coming stars of the future, I think. Whether he'll ever be world champion is another story. OK, well, he, he, he hasn't got a seat in a Mercedes, so actually, wherever you are, really, at the moment, does it actually matter? As, as long as you're beating your teammate, you're almost better off wiping the floor with your teammate in a lower team than, than being anywhere else at all, really, aren't you? I think you can make a name for yourself by being at the front of the midfield teams. I think if he can do that consistently, and that is what he's been doing through the course of this season, I think if he can, if he can do that, then, say, for my money, he's, he's best place to stay where he is for at least another season, and then opt out and uh, command a greater figure. But... I think he's being paid quite well as it is by most people's standards. So probably more than a living wage, isn't it? Uh, yes, uh, yes. I think uh, rather more uh, sort of London waiting, or in this case, uh, Modena waiting, perhaps. And, uh, and a, a final talking point to take away from the whole weekend, really. Um, seeing, I think even Lewis has admitted he's getting slightly bored with uh, starting on pole position and walking away and winning everything. Belgium, I think, was uh, was one of the least interesting races I've seen over the last couple of years. Um, mm. and the the events of the whole weekend, I think, does it add a bit of weight to um, to shaking up the format? Do we need a uh, reverse grid, reverse championship order, qualifying race on the Saturday, 20 laps or 15 laps, 22 laps, whatever it happens to be, all you know, relative to the, uh, the circuit length, say a quarter of the Grand Prix distance? Um, have a uh, qualifying race, Lewis starts last, see where he ends up, and, and that sets the grid for the main race on Sunday. I think that, that would certainly spice things up, and, and again, as long as the conditions and the rules are the same for everyone, there's no there's no randomness, there's no drawing a number out of a hat to see where you start on the grid. It's um same rules for everyone, and see how you get on. Well, uh, in, interesting idea, I think, with the Concord Agreement just being signed, the uh... The, the the big money teams, although they're slightly less money teams uh, in the future, will uh, not want to uh, upset the apple cart too much and change too many things. But uh, certainly the idea of putting Lewis at the back of the field, but even then, you know, he, he, he comes out from his 10-second penalty 20 seconds behind car ni- number 19 and still finishes... Uh, seventh, he, seventh, he finished, Bottas finished fifth. That's just amazing. You know, and and uh, the way he, you know, when they had that ridiculous procession in qualifying, all the cars not wanting to be the first to make the break, and he just shot through all of them. You know, he's the class of the field, and uh, will remain so. How much he's going to be distracted by this new X forty four idea, I really don't know. That he's announced this morning, this this um, across the globe with electric four by fours. It seems to me a slightly strange idea, but maybe he's caught on to something which is uh, uh, the way ahead for that sort of type of motorsport. Uh, he's certainly put a lot of money into it because it's his team. He's not going to drive for it, but it's his team. And uh, he's going to pick and choose the drivers and engineers to go with it. I think it's fascinating. and I don't think it's necessarily wrong either. I think the fact that um, that you can have an electric 4x4, and we have electric dirt bikes, as we already know, Um, but electric 4x4s, a challenge that represents things that we need to achieve in terms of emissions and everything else, in terms of the future. I think it's a a relatively interesting race series, and actually, for me, that sounds more interesting than Formula E, Um, and you can shoot me down on this, but actually, there's something, something to be said for being able to put a car through such extreme challenges. I've always enjoyed rallying i've always enjoyed watching cars 
off-road. I think it's it's just fascinating when you see something like a, a Land Rover articulate itself over some particularly rough terrain. It's it's really interesting and it's it's great fun. If you've ever had a go at driving any kind of off-road, um, Jim and I uh, took a Ranger through a river, through what was effectively like a giant sewer pipe, I think, to be honest, and then properly off-roading uh, and through an articulation test and everything else. And it was superb fun. I think if you've got the the opportunity to do that at some point definitely do it because it, it, it is superb but it's also quite interesting to watch um, because you don't think really that a car can move in that way adding the extra weight and the complication of, of running the thing on, on electric as it is at the moment i think that would make for quite an interesting race series so although i will fully admit to all of you listening now um that before this i had no idea that this existed because i must have missed it this morning but that does sound really interesting Rather than it sounding like, you know, the Paris-Dakar or something and it's going to be proper endurance, it says each circuit will be designed in remote areas and the races will take place over two laps of approximately 16 kilometres. So they're only really expecting to race for 32 kilometres. Is that not just a bit crap? Or am I just misreading it? Well, it it depends. I think it's... uh... Lots of different race series have lots of different formats, don't they? And the the touring cars, it's certainly very exciting to uh, to watch. But actually, the the road relevance of racing, or you know, win on Sunday, sell on Monday, etc., that, that we've discussed many many times in the past, are things like touring cars or rallying. Actually, should manufacturers focus on those a bit more? Because at the end of the day, if you buy a uh, a Honda Civic, it's roughly the same size shape and consistency is the car that goes touring car racing and and over the years it's been the same with the you know with Renaults and Audis and Vauxhalls and Peugeots and you name it and in rallying Ford, Subaru, uh, Toyota etc they all the cars look like the road cars so you you invariably started off supporting the team that ran the car that your dad drove or whatever so those races tend to be a lot lot shorter don't they touring car races are, are only 20 laps Rallying, actually, if if we're looking at the future of electric motorsport, range is an issue when it comes to batteries and, and electric vehicles, as we know. Actually, how long do most rally stages tend to be? Two not, kilometres, not five kilometres, ten kilometres, forty kilometres? Quite a lot in between them, though, as endurance. Yeah, goes. So that, and the whole point of electric and the worries about range and things, I think they should be doing more to try and counteract that, not help it really yeah in rallying you've got the service area that's that's generally quite central or in the middle etc these are not a possibility of uh, of electric rally cars and, and you simply have a another car or a pack of batteries or you know if, um, if it if it's a big if it's a, a big business could you have um you know homogenous batteries that the rally cars all run and uh, and there's one truck that follows them around with charged batteries that that slot out and slot in at the end or the beginning of every stage or whatever or, or you know halfway through the day whatever it happens to be you know could one 52 ton articulated lorry follow the rally cars around and top up the batteries touring car races 20 laps well you'll do that on a single charge so is uh, is that not more the future of electric motorsport and leave um leave formula one and world endurance and a few others to uh, to petrol power 
Mm. I would have hoped that that would be the case. You remember when um, Formula E started, it was like, right, bring your car in, go and get your next one, and off you go again. And that was basically sending very much the wrong message, wasn't it? It was quite a profligate way of doing it, and it was just hammering home the fact that battery technology isn't good enough yet. And now that they can run them for the full duration, I think that's just showing the progress that there is in this area. And I think that's why the electric and hybrid certainly but you know going fully electric in the future has got to be the future because it's where we're all headed you know the government have this policy that we're not allowed to buy internal combustion engines from whatever date it is i i can't remember now i've zoned out on that yeah they keep 20 30 something uh i think it's got to be the future and i think this is a really exciting thing and i think andrew mentioned earlier by pushing the boundaries and seeing how far you can go and having swappable batteries i think is the answer or having quick recharging because that will then hopefully push the development of what you can buy in the shops racing improves the breed as they say this is a perfect example of where they could be setting policy for how our cars are to be fueled using the term inverted air quote things there how how we will re recharge our cars in the future will it be you know bring it into a service station slot a battery pack in the other one goes on the shelf gets charged for the next person who comes along in the next couple of hours no this has got to be the future standing there for 45 minutes waiting for your car to recharge might be an option for someone who likes standing around drinking coffee and having a cigarette or whatever but for normal people five minutes in and out at a petrol station has got to be replicated fairly soon by electric cars and if the racing can bring this about quicker then so much the better on the subject of charging when you're out and about you know the the five ten minutes you spend at a at a petrol station uh, for for 90 percent of uh, of people they're they'll just charge them overnight because they they never go further than 150 200 250 i think we've got quite a few evs with a near a 300 mile range now most mm. people don't go further than 300 miles um in uh, in one journey it's very rare so for most people it's working back it's nipping to the shops dropping the kids off at school whatever it is so that that sort of charging you take care of overnight so that's even easier you know to, to plug in your car when you get home it takes far less time than it does to drive to a petrol station um get out fill up go in pay come back out again um it's the uh, and of course if uh, if you next time you stop at the motorway services um just for a uh, comfort break and a cup of coffee you know time yourself and see how long you're there start to finish and uh, and nine times out of ten if you plugged in and, and charged up whilst you were there just that extra 10 15 20 minutes would uh, would give you a decent bit of range to get you easily to your next stop so i think the um the out and about charging infrastructure is uh, is is heading in the right direction it needs to be more plentiful and more reliable certainly but i uh, i don't think we need the ability to charge up your electric vehicle or swap out the batteries or whatever it is in two minutes flat at as many locations as we have petrol stations say you know your your typical rural small petrol station won't need to upgrade to that facility it, it will become obsolete unfortunately as things go on but i don't think it's the case we need uh, that much rapid charging everywhere but on the motorway, certainly. Yeah, I mean, obviously for distance, yeah, for long distance, you're right. I quite agree, Dave, with much of what you're saying, but also I, I would echo what uh, Andrew's point, that two 16-kilometre uh, laps don't really uh, show the capabilities of electric cars now. They possibly show the uh, capabilities of electric cars four or five years ago, perhaps, 
you know, we need we need to uh, be much more challenged about how we use electric power. For me, uh, uh, the self-powered hybrid, self-charging hybrid, is the way ahead, and will be in the in the foreseeable future. I I sent Andrew because it caught my eye a photo of uh, how not to charge your car on one of these lamppost chargers, with the cable draped across the street to catch out the unwary and trip them up and. You know, if you if you can't do it uh, with a degree of common sense, perhaps you shouldn't even be allowed into a car. <laughs> or am I being contentious? <laughs> uh, no, that's probably the same when it comes to uh, to filling up. It does amaze me that the general public are allowed to uh, to fill up their own vehicles with uh, with petrol. It's uh, it's terrifying sometimes what people get up to in petrol stations. But hey. We spoke about quick battery swaps and, and actually Renault had, they built a, a station, I think it was in Dubai, where you drove in and effectively it held the car, unscrewed the battery from underneath, screwed another one off and away you went. And again, it was about five minutes. But the, the infrastructure that's required to do that, to store the batteries and everything else, is very, very expensive. So you couldn't just pop these into where a petrol station is. They take up a reasonable amount of space as well. But it's an interesting concept. And whether we will be able to have a fast charging system. So in between rallies, as you say, where you have collecting areas and so on and so forth, whether you can just plug a car in and then fast charge it quick enough, I don't know. But I think it is interesting. And I think, as you guys have said, you know, the future is that we are moving into these types of powertrains. And certainly it makes sense that, that motorsport reflects this. The idea of the battery swap, the rapid battery swap, uh, first example I saw that I think was the GM Volt which was maybe about 10 years ago, but that was, you know, the design was predicated upon the idea that you wouldn't so much recharge the battery uh, after a certain while you leased that battery and after a certain while you'd simply take it to your local dealer who would uh, put it up on the stand, take the battery out, put the next one in and away you went again. It was not very successful and has uh, fallen by the wayside many years ago. The Chevy Volt and or the was it the Vauxhall Ampera? It was called mm. over here. Yeah, you see yeah, a few around yeah. still. I think that was it was a car that was sort of slightly ahead of its time, sadly. And but you know it it helped move things on a bit. You know I'm sure they took ideas from it, and there will certainly be things that are being included now as Vauxhall now have the full electric uh, Corsa. I'm sure there will have been something filtered down from General Motors and now as they're owned by Citroen and Peugeot, I think, aren't they? Yeah, um, That will have all been absorbed and um, they'll they'll carry on. So, you know, it's all being honed as we go forward and different ideas. There'll be cul-de-sacs, there'll be, um, you know, light bulb moments, if you want to use the analogy for electricity. And eventually we'll we'll have something that works perfectly. We'll recharge in a split second, and um, and we'll be motoring off into the future silently. But you know, all the time we've got a combustion engine, it does sound a lot better. We, we want some something like the kids' uh, Christmas presents, where uh, basically you turn it upside down, put in four AA batteries, and away you go for another <laughs> thousand miles. Uh, when we can do that, I think we'll have made real progress. Can you imagine how many AAs? The magic figure is the energy by volume or however they measure it and uh, as soon as you come up with a battery that will produce enough to power a car for uh, let's say five or ten miles and be the same as a litre of petrol in in size that's the um that's the golden ticket isn't it because when something's 
that size you can swap it out very easily and uh, energy density I think they call it so as soon as we have a that's battery it. that's got the same energy density as fuel then uh, then we'll be well away but I think we are a little way off that yet mm. yeah match that with economies of scale mm. as long as we don't go the hydrogen route I don't know I, I quite like the hydrogen route I know there are there are some definite downsides to it but it does seem to be the cleanest and most I don't know it's the most enticing one the fact that you can make hydrogen at home and then talking about the way people treat petrol stations do you really want people making hydrogen at <laughs> oh home? hell no so you know i've just answered my own question there really haven't i but uh, more than just a squeaky pop with the uh, the amount that people would be uh, creating in their garages but if they can make it safer i think hydrogen still is probably the magic bullet but electricity i think is going to be the way isn't it but if people can't put d- diesel in their cars, are you really going to trust them to uh, put uh, <laughs> exactly. hydrogen in their cars? No, oh, not no, if you own no. a forecourt. I think hydrogen makes a, a lot of sense. It's expensive to, to manufacture, isn't it, at this point in time? And it's harder to store. But if you think about it, think about the number of petrol stations we have. If they were hydrogen stations instead, then it would make a lot of sense. You get water. I mean, I do wonder if in a city you might get uh, the amount of water coming out the back. You might get rainfall at 12 o'clock or something. (laughs) But nevertheless, uh, it makes a lot of sense to be able to have something that you can, in inverted commas, burn or turn into steam, whatever the correct term is for a hydrogen vehicle. It makes a lot of sense. It does make a lot of sense. There's less in terms of the damage that you can do to the planet from mining the batteries. And there are a number of other decent benefits to having a hydrogen-powered car. Obviously, slight disadvantage if you don't make a decent fuel cell and the thing explodes and you have a crash. That's bad news. But that aside, I, there's there's a lot of potential for it to work in the future. And I wonder whether or not electric cars are actually the, the medium term rather than the long, long term. I don't know. But I guess we'll, we'll, we'll be a while till we find out. I think you're right. I think the fuel cell is the longer term goal. But I think we're, we're still some way from that. A government arbitrarily plucking out of the air date of getting rid of all petrol-powered cars, including hybrids, is is just, that's, that's politics. That's not common sense. It's not pragmatism. And it's, it's not very good science. It's, it's the stupidity of politicians in thinking that that's going to happen. It just isn't. Just quickly, I think we perhaps might have a bit more chance to talk about this next time because um, they've only just released the uh, the specs and things. But the new Maserati MC20, or as it's styled, the MCXX, has been released. This is pretty car. Maserati's new, very pretty car. It's a it's a mid engine thing with. Um, I think we're, we're all agreed. It's certainly got elements of everything in there, more than a little bit of McLaren. There's definitely mm. a bit of uh, parent company's Ferrari in there and even bits of Alpha, dare I say. And I think the I'm right in saying that the mule that was running around for a long time was actually a, a bodged 4C, which is obviously a, a mid-engine Alpha thing. It's got a V6 that. engine turbocharged, uh, twin turbo, so it's not going to be slow, 600-odd horsepower. And they're going to go racing with it as well. So perhaps once we know a little bit more about this, as I say, this has only really just popped up on the radar today, we can perhaps bring you a little bit more about that next time. looks lovely, though. It looks really does. Pretty. It does look very nice. The, uh, I think the vents above the uh, the rear wheels are very Ferrari 360, I think. Actually, the yes. whole car's got a bit, of, uh, a bit of 360 about it as well, which is uh, no bad thing. There's so much of everything in it. There's a little bit of Alpine. There's a little bit of Lotus. There's definitely a fair dash of, um, as you say, Alpha in there. I can see how maybe a 4C would 
sort of fit with that look. Uh, it's just, it's a good looking thing though. What it looks like is, you know when you get a Hot Wheels car that isn't an actual car? <laughs> yeah. Or, or maybe it's from Grand Theft Auto or something, where they've, they've, you know, they've Super made Super Sports this... Racer Thrust. Something like it, that. Yeah, it's it Grand Theft Auto, isn't it? Yeah, yeah that's it, it. It really does, but do you know what? I think I'd be very pleased to have that sat on my drive. It's a good-looking thing, isn't it? Mm. It's very pretty. There's, there's even elements, I think, in there, if you look sort of squint at it of uh, Audi R8 uh, certainly in the slatted slatted glass on the uh, in the back there or perspex or whatever it is that's covering the engine I was going to say from um, the tails yeah yeah, yeah. it's going to be a pretty thing it's, um, it's got very much the trademark uh, Maserati lights at the back as well, which which mm. is nice to see. You know, at least that differentiates it from the uh, from the Ferrari in one respect. As long mm. as they keep the clock, the clock's very important. Yeah. <laughs> is it an optional extra still though? The, the the clock has been the same in Maserati since the 1930s, I think, and it's one of my delights if I climb into a Maserati to see that the clock is unchanged. Mm. Not the same clock, but the same shape of clock. <laughs> Not shown the same time. It just doesn't yeah. work like most th- most other things in Maseratis. They, they they make it very clear that uh, they're trading all the time on their history, which you know isn't really the case with Ferraris anymore. Apart from the uh, Cavallino Rampante, they've somewhat lost any link to the great you know 250 SWB the 50 250 GTO and those sorts of cars whereas Maserati have kept something that that just is a link to their to their long and illustrious past and yes Sterling loved the cars yeah well it it does say here i mean and i remember reading sort of back a couple of months ago actually around about the time not long after after he passed away sadly that um a couple of their prototypes were running in in livery that paid uh, tribute to him so you know they they're not ones to forget their heritage which is good mm. to know and certainly ferrari would actually be better off trading off their heritage i think at the moment than they would be off their current performance by all <laughs> accounts um on the note of ferrari uh, they have also released a new car and that is the roma i don't know if you've seen this it's a very pretty thing which Beautiful. looks it looks almost identical Beautiful. to db11 it's almost like someone's looked at it and gone yeah i reckon we could do that and they've done their own version of it however i'm told that in the metal they do look really quite different but mm, i'm not so sure i agree either way i'm excited to learn a bit more about this matter and, and hopefully we can talk about that a bit more next time well as always we have digressed across a number of different subjects here we really hope you've enjoyed sitting here and listening to what we've been chatting about today. We've got some exciting stuff to talk about next time, and we really hope that you'll join us again. So from me, Mike, it's goodbye. From me, Jim, goodbye. It's Graham, and uh, it's good night from me. And from David, goodbye. See you later. UK Motor Talk, a first-take media production.